With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and... Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Caixin Seneca Business Brief brought to you by SubChina. Each week, we bring you a roundup from the world of business in China from Caixin, China's authority on business and financial news, as well as interviews with Caixin Global reporters and editors. I'm Kaiser Guo from the Seneca Podcast. And I'm Ada Shen in Paris. It's been a week dominated by talk of tariffs, and as we will discuss later, some action to back that up. But first, your weekly roundup. China has appointed a veteran leader of the Communist Party's anti-graft organ as the first chief of the country's new anti-corruption mega-agency created under President Xi Jinping's efforts to extend his control over personnel and discipline. Yang Xiaodu was picked to head the new National Supervisory Commission, an organization combining the Ministry of Supervision and the National Bureau of Corruption Prevention as part of a major government overhaul. Yang previously worked with Xi in Shanghai and served for three years as a deputy of now Vice President Wang Qishan when Wang led the Communist Party's anti-graft organ. The move means that Xi allies are in place in nearly all key positions of, among other things, agencies that enforce discipline and investigate government and party conduct. After months of speculation, Meituan Dianping, one of China's largest online services platforms, has rolled out its car hailing business. Users in Shanghai and Nanjing can now hail rides through Meituan's mobile app, which already offers a range of services such as food delivery, hotel bookings, and movie tickets. The rollout comes as a challenge to car hailing leader Didi Chuxing, which itself recently entered the food takeout space. A recent fundraising round put Meituan's valuation at 30 billion U.S. dollars, behind Didi's estimated 56 billion U.S. dollars. In another blow to the country's video streaming sector, China has further tightened regulations on online videos calling for local governments to scrub from the web parodies and adaptations that are based on copyrighted content. China's media regulator said that some programs, quote, based on revisions or remakes of other copyrighted and original works, have had a significantly damaging influence on society, unquote. Sites must now ban videos that, quote, distort, mock, or defame classical literary and artworks, unquote. The new rule is expected to pose a serious challenge to online video sites, many of which feature spoofs and other user-generated content inspired by copyrighted programs. The number of such online video sites has grown rapidly in recent years. Earlier this month, online video platform Bilibili, which has 80 million monthly active users, 
filed to raise up to $400 million in a New York IPO just days after rival ICE made a similar filing. Profit for Tencent's online publishing unit, China Literature, grew 15-fold last year compared to the previous year, according to the company's final results released after its blockbuster IPO. The bookseller's revenue comes primarily from payments by readers of the company's online content, which ranges from popular romance serials to comics. Online reading accounted for most of the company's revenue in 2017. China Literature, which made its stock market debut in a heavily oversubscribed Hong Kong IPO in November, sells millions of ebooks through multiple online platforms, including a reading function built into Tencent's WeChat. China Literature offers works by 7 million writers on its platforms, the vast majority of which are contracted and trained to produce original content for the company. A significant increase in paid users boosted revenue last year, with an average of 11 million people paying to use China Literature's services each month. In addition to reader payments, the company hopes to adapt more of the intellectual property it owns into movies, TV series, and video games. Speaking of Tencent, 10 Chinese smartphone makers have vowed to join forces to challenge the growing dominance of WeChat, or Weixin, China's largest social media platform, by creating something called Quick App. The Quick App will act as a platform for app developers to offer services to users without those users having to download individual apps, much like the mini programs on WeChat. The alliance includes Xiaomi, Huawei, Lenovo, ZTE, GNE, and Vivo. In a statement, the company said all vendors will open up their own technological platforms, including app stores, browsers, mobile desktop search engines, and intelligent push notifications in order to create a single ecosystem to launch Quick App. The statement specifically said Quick App would support online payment, a challenge to WeChat, which has evolved from an instant messaging app into a mobile payment giant in recent years. But the 10 companies joining forces made around 1 billion handsets that are currently in use in China, offering them a huge user base to which they can promote Quick App. U.S.-listed tech giants Alibaba and JD.com are expected to become the first companies to make secondary listings on the mainland through the issue of so-called China Depository Receipts, or CDRs. New York Stock Exchange-listed Alibaba and Nasdaq-listed JD may be able to issue and trade CDRs on Chinese markets soon, as mainland authorities move to bring the stocks of China's high-tech leaders home. China is studying ways to make it easier for companies from emerging sectors to float domestically, part of efforts to invigorate the capital market. One of those options is the launch of CDRs, which would enable Chinese companies listed elsewhere to trade at home. Regulators are modeling the CDRs after U.S.-listed American depository receipts. The CDRs would also enable tech companies to bypass legal and technical barriers to IPOs. Thanks, Ada. Let's turn now to some of Caixin Global's reporters and editors to take a closer look at some of the big news for the week. Let's start with Caixin Global Managing Editor Doug Young. Doug, the big thing on everyone's mind this week was, of course, the tariff situation. Uh, can you catch us up on this? Sure. This this has actually been coming a long time, so it's not really not really blindsiding anybody. Uh, but Trump last year announced that he was going to launch an, an investigation into unfair trade practices and intellectual property theft and and so forth. And 
they've concluded the investigation and surprise, surprise, uh, the determination is that China engages in unfair trade practices. So uh, obviously the big story was that on Thursday in the U.S., uh, they announced relatively vague uh, punishment, basically saying tariffs will be imposed on Chinese imports worth about 50 billion U.S. dollars. They didn't really single out specific products. The only thing that they did specify at this point was that there's going to be a 15-day waiting period, a cooling period, basically a chance for China to avoid these tariffs altogether. So, of course, China has fired back saying, we're going to impose tariffs on $3 billion worth of U.S. products. But it's, it's a bit unclear if those tariffs were basically aimed at earlier Trump punitive tariffs against steel and aluminum imported from other countries, or if this is a new action. But bottom line is the, the Chinese reaction didn't seem like it was as big as some people were thinking. So the next question is, what's going to happen here? And my take, and I think a lot of people's take, is that Trump is basically trying to force the Chinese to do some hard negotiating. Chinese in the past have just been famous for saying, we'll do this. Uh, you know, and a great example is 2012 World Trade Organization ruling saying China had to open up its market to MasterCard and Visa and, and electronic payments companies. China says, we're going to do it. They've said they're going to do it several times. Uh, you know, fast forward six years later, they still haven't done it. You know, and I think there's a general feeling in the foreign business community, not just the American business community, that, you know, China says it will do lots of things and then it, it really drags its feet and takes a long, long time to do them in terms of market access. So this is really going to put China's feet to the fire saying, we're giving you 15 days, come up with a, a list of things you're going to do and a specific timeline of when you're going to do them. China probably realizes this. They've, they've made lots of signals all along saying we're going to further open up. But again, talk is cheap. And so this is actually going to be a, a real intense period for U.S.-China relations. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this 15-day period. So do you think if China doesn't blink and the U.S. has to make its move, that it actually will go ahead? Or, or do you think that the objections that have been raised domestically by American business groups are going to actually get Trump to, to soften or to backpedal a bit on this? Plenty of U.S. business groups have been lobbying against this, and Trump is moving ahead. I, I honestly think this is classic Trump. He's, he's a businessman. He, this is his style of negotiation. You know, I don't think he has no intention of imposing the tariffs. I think he'll do it if, if, if absolutely necessary, but it's more of a bargaining tactic. And I mean, China has said it's going to reduce all sorts of ownership barriers and, and all sorts of limits on what foreign companies can do. They've said they're going to accelerate all that. And I think a lot of that is in response to pressure that's been coming from the U.S. this year. I think what we're going to have to see is some real firm commitments and, and timetables. Okay, obviously this is something that we're going to be paying a lot of attention to. Uh, meanwhile, let's go on to the second story that you wanted to chat about, which is about internet behemoth Tencent. Uh, what's going on with Tencent? This story is a fascinating story just from the perspective of sort of hitting the jackpot. Uh, we all know about Tencent. It's, it's just this hugely successful company. They're the owners of WeChat, which has just passed a billion users. Uh, they're one of the world's 10 most valuable companies. 
And this news is that basically one of their earliest investors, a, a South African company called Naspers, sold off a big chunk of the stock that they still have in these guys. They've, they've sold off stuff before, but this was a relatively big chunk. It was about 2% of their shares. And this caused a bit of havoc because they, they sold off the stake at below market price. So it, it put a lot of downward pressure on 10 cent shares. But from my perspective, just the, the most fascinating thing is just how, how much money Naspers made off this uh, investment. This is sort of like basically investing in Facebook when, when it was still a, an outfit in Mark Zuckerberg's college dorm and, and Naspers, I think. Seriously doubt they had any idea that this was going to go on to become such a huge company. But look at what's happened. So these guys sort of hit the jackpot. So, so let's take a look at Naspers and the investment that they made way back in, in the early days of Tencent, uh, how much they're actually making from this sale and, and why they've decided to sell right now. You know, there, there's a zillion internet startups all over the place. And they're usually, especially in their early stage, they're just groveling for money wherever they can find it. So my guess is that Tencent, you know, was, was probably the startup needed some money. And, and, you know, they found this company, Naspers, probably through an introduction by a friend. And, and Naspers, you know, some obscure South African company gave them a couple million dollars. And they said, OK, we'll give you 20 percent of the company for that. And at that time, that kind of evaluation probably would have valued Tencent at maybe eight, nine million dollars. Uh, now, of course, it's worth 300 or 400 billion dollars. So I think I read a figure that said Naspers, you know, made something like a 60,000 percent profit or something like that off the investment. As to why Naspers sold now, they're a company like any other company. Uh, it's, it's sort of like Yahoo and Alibaba. The Yahoo invested in Alibaba relatively early on. And they ended up holding this stake in this huge company that was worth multiple times bigger than Yahoo itself. So suddenly the, the, the biggest asset the company had wasn't its own business, but instead all the stock it had in Alibaba. Uh, and that's the same sort of story with, with Naspers. They've just liquidated it to cash out on their investment. They need cash for their own operations, their own expansion. Uh, so you wouldn't see that there's any systemic concern about Tencent's business then? It's true. You, you know, you look at something like Facebook, you know, a lot of people are starting to say that Facebook, are they past their prime? I mean, they've had all their other problems as well. But if you go back to the States, people below a certain age just don't use Facebook. It's sort of passe and stuff, you know, and something like Google is a bit more timeless because it's just search. But, you know, when it comes to social networking, there's always the next big thing. And Tencent is all about social networking. So, I haven't seen any new social networking apps that, that, that seem to be taking on Tencent just yet. But, you know, maybe there are people out there who are saying, is this thing peaked and maybe it's going to start going down? Well, great, Doug. We will check in with you next week. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Kaiser. Next up is Purnima Weerasekara to talk about the controversy over China's building of a hydropower dam. Purnima, welcome back. And uh, break, break the story down for us. What's the backstory here and what's going on right now? The story is about how a major hydropower station in southwest China's Yunnan province is going to damage or destroy the last remaining rainforest in China. Now, this development is happening in the impoverished region of Xishuangbanna, which is the Dai Autonomous Area. And environmentalists and many scientists say that the project has been given the green light although it didn't have a proper environmental impact assessment. So we don't even really know what the damage is. 
But from the little we know, areas that are demarcated to be a protected nature reserve have already been stripped of vegetation and the dam is threatening the local population of Asian elephants as well as a major fish reserve with lots of endemic tropical fish and other aquatic animals. The development has been underway since 2015. The local government hasn't revealed the size of investment. They only say that the dam will generate electricity for the 1 million plus local population. But the issue is, without a proper environmental impact assessment, it is impossible to say how this will affect the fragile ecosystem. The worst thing is, the dam is being built on a tributary to the Mekong River, which is Asia's seventh largest river which is not only used by people in China, but it flows through five other Southeast Asian countries. So damming upstream is going to reduce the water flow for countries like Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia, which is downstream. But they have very little say on what's happening. This has been a long-term problem. China has been damming the Mekong River for more than two decades now. More than 20 dams have been built since the 1980s. And all of this is affecting the fisheries sector as well as agriculture, not just in Yunnan, but also in the other countries that are downstream. So when you say 20, do you mean 20 in China? Yes, we're only talking about the section of the Mekong in Yunnan province because the Mekong originates in Qinghai province and also flows through Tibet and Yunnan. So just in Yunnan, there are 20 dams. Oh, oh, wow, just in Yunnan. Okay, so that's the background and a bit on the international component. Uh, the Mekong source is, of course, in China, but uh, I guess we knew that. But it flows through several countries. What's happening now, though? So after more than two years of development, finally, a small environmental conservation group based in Beijing has filed a lawsuit in a local court in Yunnan. They're trying to stop the developers, but that's hard because it's a huge conglomerate China resources that's behind this dam. And right now, thanks to a bureaucratic glitch, development of the project has been suspended since January this year because China Resources says that their logging license has expired, but there's nothing preventing them from getting another license. Meanwhile, this NGO called uh, Friends of Nature, they're trying to sue the developer as well as the company that they hired to do the environmental impact assessment, saying it's flawed, but it's a real uphill battle. Although China has strengthened its environmental laws in recent years, it is still difficult to fight such big powers and also because the local government is siding with the developers, although they know very clearly that the environmental impact assessment is incomplete and also false in some instances. So you touched on it, but it's interesting that since, you know, as we said, the Mekong does run through so many countries, is there more to the international component to this? Uh, Was this because of Chinese domestic NGOs or was this international opposition as well? As we know, because the Mekong River runs through six different countries, in addition to China, there is Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Myanmar and Thailand. There is this so-called coordination mechanism, a partnership program where these countries are supposed to get together and discuss and make a collective decision about developments related to the Mekong. But unfortunately, this particular body has been ineffective and China, being the upstream country, has ignored the voices of these other poorer Southeast Asian neighbors. So there's very little that these countries can do. That's why there's been widespread damming on the portion of the Mekong that goes through China. These countries have even tried at times to go to the UN, but they've just been silenced by China. So how do you think this is going to play out then? I mean, China's development juggernaut generally has a way of pushing things through and it's determined to, right? 
it's too early. The court case has just been filed. There hasn't been a single hearing. If all goes according to plan, this particular project is supposed to finish in April 2020. And because the local government is siding with the developer and they wouldn't want to let go of such a big investment, it's it's very unlikely that the environmental group will be able to stop the construction. And worse, construction has been underway for more than two years now. So part of the damage has already been done. So aerial photographs taken by this conservation group already show vast areas near the bank of a tributary to the Mekong completely stripped of any vegetation. It's just bare yellow soil. Pranima, thanks very much. And we'd love to follow up with you on this story when there are further developments. Thank you, Kaiser. That's this week's show. Thanks for joining us. Drop me an email at kaiser at subchina.com with your feedback. The Caixin Syndicate Business Brief is powered by SubChina and is produced, recorded, and edited by Kaiser Guo with stories from the staff of Caixin Global. Thanks, of course, to Ada Shen. Special thanks to Lee Xin and to Tanner Brown of Caixin Global and to Spring and Autumn and Wu Fei for the music. Be sure to check out our current affairs show, Sinica, as well as the new GGV996 podcast on technology in China, and follow the news from China every day at subchina.com. Sign up for our free email newsletter at subchina.com. Take care.